Well, the church I grew up in had a bookstore, and not like our book nook, which just has books, but this was like a Christian bookstore like you used to see in strip malls across the country. In other words, this was a Christian bookstore, so it had more than just books. It had trinkets, lots and lots of trinkets, T-shirts and stickers and figurines and pictures and blankets and toys, all Christian versions of them. And I remember one day as a kid realizing how much in our bookstore was devoted to Noah and the ark. We had Noah's ark shirts and blankets and precious moments, figurines. And if you grew up in the similar kind of Christian culture that I grew up in, you can see these things in your head. You can imagine there are smiles on the faces of the figurines. Everything I just described was painted in pastels, very bright, happy pastels. They were all very cutesy. That cutesy description of Noah's Ark has been a cultural phenomenon for a long time. It wasn't unique to the bookstore that our church had growing up. But if we think about this event of the flood with some seriousness and honesty and paying close attention to the actual biblical story, we give it just a minute's thought, we'll, we'll remember that this is no sweet, cutesy, pastel-painted kind of story. It's catastrophic, deadly, terrifying, devastating, horrifying. Nothing as catastrophic and devastating and earth-shattering has happened on this planet, either before it happened or since. As we saw last week from Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. How great was it? That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so, verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. So, Make yourself an ark, Noah. Verse 17, God went on to say, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Everything on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. You and your wives and your sons and their wives. God would save one family but would otherwise destroy all of humanity. As we noted last week, far from depicting God as a God who is capricious, who flies off the handle, who has a bad temper, Genesis 6 describes human beings as the source of the problem. They were destroying themselves in the created order and God was just and righteous to give them over to that destruction and violence. God, we saw last week, is actually the one who knows and sees 
and cares more than anyone or anything else. And he not only cares, he does something about it. He acts. He intervenes. Now, you can listen to last week's message if you missed it, if you want to give more attention to why the flood was just and righteous and a mark of God's care and love. We covered that sufficiently last week. But what I don't want us to miss as we come to the actual event of the flood this week is how deadly serious it is, that it is a matter of life and death. It was unparalleled destruction and death. It was not sweet and cute. But right in the middle of all that universal destruction, God was saving one family, and from that one family would start a whole new humanity, 500 or so represented here this morning. And we should feel the weight of that juxtaposition. I know a big word. I like that word juxtaposition. It's the putting alongside of two things by way of contrast. And boy, do we have that in the flood. Outside the ark, destruction. Inside the ark, salvation. A flood of judgment and an ark of salvation. So look down in your Bibles if you have them open to Genesis chapter 7. And I'll read this chapter for us. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood." of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every kind of winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. 
And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Well, we'll get into a bit of chapter 8 later on, but there's chapter 7. A lot takes place between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. We don't know how much time elapses between the end of one chapter into the next, but it had to be a long time. God seemed to be saying back in chapter 6 verse 3 that he would delay judgment for 120 years. So it was possibly 120 years between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. But it was at least as long as it would have taken for a family to build this massive ship. Chapter 6, verse 15 gave us the dimensions, an ark that is 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. A cubit is about 18 inches, so this is about 450 feet long, one and a half football fields. Of course, modern cruise ships, since the invention of steel, they have the capability of being much larger than that. But this, for ancient times, would have been absolutely huge. It's double the size of any ancient wooden ship that archaeologists have discovered thus far. As chapter 6 ends, Noah has set off on this building project as God commanded him. And as chapter 7 begins, apparently that huge task has been completed. So God has been waiting. Noah has been building And we learn from the New Testament that throughout this time, Noah has also been preaching. He's been preaching. 2 Peter 2 says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. A herald, a preacher, a proclaimer, a representative of the king. In this case, giving warning to the people. So God was patient in waiting. God was merciful to warn through Noah's preaching. But God's plan of salvation and judgment was sure. 
And in chapter 7, the time had fully come. Now, if we follow some key action verbs in our passage of chapter 7 and into 8, we'll have five sections. So I've got five headings for you right from the text of Scripture. The first, go into the ark. That's what God says to Noah. Go into the ark, chapter 7, verse 1. You and all your household for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. We saw that last week, that Noah was righteous. We also saw that he found favor with God. Chapter 6, verse 8. We said last week that favor with God wasn't earned favor. It was pure grace. But because God's grace changes and transforms. Noah was a man who was, among his peers in his day, relatively righteous, a man who walked with God. He was different. And you just think about the faith and obedience involved in building that massive ark as God commanded him to before there were any floods. We saw it in Hebrews 11. Daniel read it for us. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear he constructed an ark. He did it in faith. Or as our passage seems to emphasize, it's what God commanded. He did what God commanded him. That's how chapter 6 ends. And we see it three times in chapter 7. Verse 5, verse 9, verse 16. It was all as God commanded him. God said, build an ark. And that's what Noah did. It's like Moses, who was overseeing the building project of the tabernacle in the later chapters of the book of Exodus. God said, make it like this. And then the, the book of Exodus ends with these rep repetitions of Noah did just as God commanded him. God said to Noah to take the animals in with him. Because God is going to begin creation again. It's going to be a hard reboot. It's that serious. And so Noah is to take of every kind of animal. Every kind need not mean every breed of canine or even every species. It could be that he brought in every family or genus, we might say, in the animal kingdom family tree thing. It doesn't say explicitly what animals were there. It doesn't say explicitly what the practical details were involved in this whole process. It doesn't say how the animals got to the boat or in the boat. I suspect it was miraculous. The Hebrew literally says that the animals came to Noah, not that they came with Noah. And so we need not give too much attention to trying to solve all the practical details of how you get these kind of animals in a boat, how they live like this in a boat for so long, and how you take care of things like, well, the defecation. Let's just call it that. The Bible isn't concerned with those details, but it does give us this detail that Noah was to take two pair of all clean animals, and then 
verse 2 of chapter 7 says seven pairs. What's with the seven? Well, it doesn't spell it out for us yet, but presumably the seven pairs of clean animals were to be for the sacrifices, which indeed is what Noah does. He makes sacrifice after he reaches dry ground. So God said, build, and Noah did. God said, take the animals in. That's what Noah would do. God said, go into the ark, and that's what they did. So secondly, they went into the ark. Look at verse 6. The flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters. Verse 9. The animals, too, went into. That's the emphasis of that next paragraph, verses 6 to 16. Noah and his family all went into the ark. Eight individuals altogether. Now, don't miss the significance of the other seven. Noah gets all the attention, and rightly so. I mean, Noah is the leader. Noah is the preacher. Noah is the builder of the ark. He is representing God in many ways. But don't overlook the necessary faith and obedience of the seven other family members. It was only once the family and the animals were in the ark that the rain started. In fact, it was seven whole days later, according to verse 10, that the flood began. And just a quick side note to help you if you're reading this carefully. uh, The same event and the same process is actually told at least twice, maybe three times in our passage. First in verses 6 through 10, and then it's repeated and told again in verses 11 to 16. And so if you're trying to read that chronologically, you mess up. But if you know that these are a retelling, this is a telling and a retelling. There's detail, but then more detail and more drama. That's just a literary device to slow down the narrative and build the suspense and come at it from another angle. And so they entered the ark as God told them. And then they sat there for seven days with no sound of rain hitting the roof. And that whole process of entering and sitting there took faith for all involved. A whole world of people outside this family didn't enter the ark. They didn't ask to board the ark. Noah's neighbors apparently did not heed his warnings decade after decade of him preaching. Now, we don't know how much the family helped with the construction of the ark. We don't know if they always believed Noah's story that God told him that a flood was coming, but they believed it when it counted, and they believed it before it was too late. And perhaps they entered the ark even still struggling with some doubts. Perhaps in those first seven days, occasionally they said to one another, this is nuts, right? I mean, what do you think the over-under is on this? What's the percentage you think that there's going to be a flood? And they sat, and they sat. 
I think there's a subtle but important reminder to us there on the nature of faith. As D.A. Carson once said, it's not the intensity of our faith that saves us, nor is it the consistency of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith that saves us. God saves. And in this case, he was saving through the instrument of the ark. And so to believe what God said was simply to get in the boat. And that was enough. Those who were in the boat were saved, even if they struggled with doubt. We can have simple Struggling, saving faith. Is there really any other kind? I mean, no, there's no perfect faith out there. Mustard seed faith moves mountains. Notice their faith. But be reminded that there comes a time when it is too late if you haven't yet believed. After the family and the animals were in the boat. Notice verse 16. I love this language. The Lord shut him in. That wasn't to keep those on board from escaping. It's a prettier picture than that. The Lord shut them in. It signals to us, the readers, that this whole salvation thing is God's doing. It's his initiative. It's his design. It's his plan. It's him keeping and protecting. The Lord shut them in. But it also gives vivid imagery that there was a clear demarcation. Inside safety, outside destruction. Juxtaposition. And then verse 11 there, the second half of it explains in great detail, well, that moment when God's countdown clock hit zero. All the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. It wasn't a light drizzle that slowly increased. It was cataclysmic. Water bursting from the ground. I've never seen that. I'm sure you haven't either. The windows of heaven were opened. That sounds torrential. This is de-creation. God is de-creating his creation. Remember back in Genesis 1 where God separated the waters above and below and he separated the land from the water. But here, now, it's just all water. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days of constant rain. Here in Albuquerque, if we have one whole day, just, just imagine that, a whole day where it keeps raining, we think something is wrong. What? What is this? Are we in Florida? This, this is weird. But 40 days. That number 40 is significant in the Bible. 
Moses and the Israelites were in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. Jonah warned the Ninevites that in 40 days, Nineveh would be destroyed. 40 often represents a time of testing and trial in the Bible. Oh, I think it was literally 40 days of rain, but 40 represents a time of trial and testing, and surely it does here as well. But, but it was 40 days, and it was historic and real, this story. That's pointed out to us in these specific time markers, like in verse 11. It was in the 600 year of, year of Noah's life, the second month, the 17th day of the month. On that day is when this broke loose. Why such specificity? Well, because it's real. Because it really happened. Because it happened to a guy. He knew what day it was. He was keeping track of what day it started. He was keeping track of how long it went. The numbers are real. It's not a fable. It's not the Gilgamesh epic. There are other flood stories in ancient Near East writings like the Gilgamesh epic. But just like those other creation accounts, remember we talked about those? There are other creation accounts in those nations surrounding Israel. Remember that there are similarities and differences in these different accounts. And so the similarities of the flood stories among these different people and cultures probably points to the fact that there was a big, big flood at one point. In fact, it's just remarkable how most cultures, most religions, and most ancient histories all have a massive flood as part of their story. But the Bible's flood narrative is unique among these other flood stories in a number of ways. In the Gilgamesh epic, the gods, plural, destroy humanity with a flood because the people are being too noisy and the gods aren't getting enough sleep. In the Gilgamesh epic, the flood gets out of control and the, the gods themselves fear for this flood because it's so powerful and destructive. I could give you dozens more of laughable differences between the biblical flood account and these other accounts of the flood in the ancient world. Let me just invite your awe and praise to the God of the Bible, the God who alone is God. Listen to Psalm 29 reflecting on this all. He says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. So ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Our third movement, the waters prevailed. Verses 17 and following, 
You see verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. It rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. Verse 19, the waters prevailed so mightily they covered the mountains. Which, by the way, doesn't have to mean that they covered Mount Everest. Mount Everest may not have been that tall. But it says the earth was covered. Many of us watched in horror back in 2004 when that tsunami encroached upon the land of Thailand. Sarah and I were in a hotel getting away for a little weekend away from the kids and enjoying our time when we started seeing that live footage roll into the news stations. We all saw the, the power of water. We saw that the water just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming and going further and further inland and it kept rising higher and higher and higher and destroying more and more and more. And not to minimize the horror and the destruction of the 2004 tsunami, but that was actually very little compared to the flood and the destruction and the death toll of Noah's flood. Did you notice all of the alls and everies and everything that's in verses 21 in following? All flesh died. All swarming creatures. All mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils were the breath of life. They died. God blotted out everything on the face of the ground. Now, some suggest that this couldn't have been a global flood. I'm no geologist. I'm just a, a humble pastor. But as a humble pastor, I can't escape the biblical language which seems so clearly, intentionally, and repetitively universal, global, and complete. Besides, a global flood is the only possibility to meet this massive global sin problem. Remember chapter 6, verse 5. God saw wickedness was great on the whole earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The earth was corrupt with God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. So I know we all wonder, we all struggle with this question of how God could do this. How could a loving God cause what we read about in verses 21 to 23? Well, remember, sin had gotten that bad. It was that pervasive. God saw it, he cared, he did something about it. But he waited to do so. Noah built an ark and he preached for a century, let's just say. And no one heeded it. And so eventually God would put an end to this corruption and to this violent world. 
he would do a hard reboot on his humanity, just like you do on your computer when it's just not working. And God had every right to do that as this world's creator and judge. The amazing thing is that God saved eight sinners that day, not that the rest were taken out. And God was also putting a bookmark in history for us to always come back to and to never forget. In the flood, God gave a one-time universal judgment on sin that would foreshadow a final end-time universal judgment that's still to come. And by the way, that's how Jesus picks up the Noah story and applies it today. He says in Matthew 24, as in those days before the flood, when they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until that day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other one left. Therefore, Jesus says to his followers, stay awake because you don't know at what time the master comes. Again, in the flood, God was putting a bookmark in history for us to come back to a foreshadow of the final judgment that's still to come. Peter does something similar in his second epistle, 2 Peter 3. He says, oh, people are scoffing these days that Jesus won't return. They say, it's always been the same from the beginning. The earth hasn't changed. He says, they forget that this world is not the old world. God flooded this earth once, and he'll come in judgment again. We don't know when, but he's not off schedule. He's not forgotten. With him, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. And so seek the Lord while he may be found. God did it before. He'll do it again. So what about you? Where do you stand with this God? Have you found refuge in the safety and the salvation of our God? Have you, have you come to him and are you in with him? Are you safe in God's protection? Because God's judgment one day again will prevail. It will prevail over all who are not in his safe salvation. And there will be a time when it is too late. The Lord will shut us in and shut us out. Fourthly, the waters receded. And here now we can read a bit of chapter 8. Read on with me. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. 
The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of the 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Now there is a wonderful literary structure to the flood story. It has a chiastic structure, we call it. Do you know that word, chiasm? A chiasm is an outline of the text that follows the inside shape of the letter X, or, or the Greek letter chi. It looks like an X. So it goes like this if you're outlining it, and that's what we find in our text, where parts of the story on one side match and correspond to and mirror something on the other side. So, so let me just show it to you briefly or at least give you enough clues that you can go find it later on your own. Notice the numbers of days that are mentioned in the passage. Chapter 7, verse 4 speaks of the seven days waiting for the flood. Chapter 7, verse 10 speaks of seven more days waiting in the ark. And then verse 17 speaks of 40 days of the flood. And then we get to this number 150, 150 days of waters prevailing, chapter 7, verse 24. And then we're going to see those same numbers now happen in reverse order. 150 days of the waters receding, 40 days of waiting, seven more days of waiting, seven more days of waiting. Chapter 7, verse 4, to chapter 8, verse 12, to chiasm. And what's the point of a chiasm? Well, there is a point. In fact, it's in the middle. X marks the spot, as they say. And what's in the middle of a chiasm is supposed to get our special attention. And what's in the middle of this chiasm is chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah. There's the turning point. There's salvation. There's the reminder that God saves from beginning to end. It depends on him. He initiates and plans it and puts us in the shelter and he closes the door and he sees us through and he remembers us on the other side. Now God remembered Noah. That phrase doesn't mean that God forgot about Noah in this whole project like we sometimes think oh, I forgot I had clothes in the wash and it's been in there for a day now and it stinks. No, God remembered Noah means that God, as it were, brought it to the forefront of his mind. I know he doesn't have the forefront of his mind. Everything's up there in the forefront. But, but from our perspective, it's like he did that. It means that God was mindful of Noah it means that God hadn't forgotten about Noah. It means that God was about to act on his behalf. And so the waters recede. Or we could say God begins to recreate. Creational language is used at the beginning of chapter 8, where God made a wind, 
That word in Hebrew can also be spirit. God made a wind, a ruach, to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Reminding us of Genesis 1-2 where the spirit of God moved on the face of the deep. Or where it says the waters receded from the earth, the land. Like in Genesis 1, when God separated the waters from the land, God is beginning again. This is a new creation. And so verses 8 to 12 of chapter 8 describe this lovely exercise with the dove. It's brilliant. Noah sends a dove out to see if it comes back. It comes back pretty quickly. Uh Uh-oh, no dry land. Waits seven days, sends out the dove again. It comes back with an olive leaf in its mouth. Vegetation. Noah waits seven more days and then opens the door. Now, fifthly, they went out from the ark. They went out. Look at verse 15 to 19. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you everything living that is with you of all flesh, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Noah, go out. And so they went out. They went out from the ark and they were saved. They stepped onto dry land. God parted the waters and they walked out on dry land. Does that sound familiar? The Red Sea? You say, well, well, maybe that's there. Maybe that's a connection Moses might have had in mind. No, it is. It's a very rare Hebrew word, this dry land. And it's used in both places. He wants his readers, his first readers, to remember the God who parts the Red Sea, the God of the people who walk on dry land. It's as old as Noah. They went out from the ark. Their salvation was Accomplished, And here we are today, seven some billion people on the earth as a legacy of that day, God saved one family and started a new humanity. And so today, from this vantage point, we look back to that powerful, vivid story of the flood as a reminder that there is another judgment still to come and it will be worse than the one before. And we look back to the ark as a symbol of salvation. A salvation that we can know these days even better because we look specifically back to Jesus who actually went through the waters of God's judgment for us. You know, as the ark was an instrument 
of salvation for Noah and his family, keeping them from judgment. So now the cross of Christ is the instrument by which God saves any and all who would come to him, but he did that by taking on judgment. Jesus was perfectly instrumental in saving a new humanity, not by avoiding judgment, but by taking on judgment that he didn't deserve, but we surely did. Recall the jeers shouted at Jesus when he was on the cross? They said, he said he could save others. He can't even save himself. Which was so ironic because in order to save others, he couldn't save himself. He didn't save himself in order to save us. Hebrews 7 says that we have a Savior who is able to save to the uttermost, completely, to the full, forever. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So have you done that? I ask you, have you? That's what it means to become a Christian. It's to draw near to God through Jesus Christ and what he did upon that cross, trusting in that death as a payment for your deserved death because of sin. Remember what D.A. Carson said about faith? It is not the intensity of our faith that saves us. It's not the consistency of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith that saves us. Look to Jesus. Don't even look to an ark. It'll do you no good in that final day. But having Jesus as your Savior and sacrifice is enough to withstand God's judgment on that final day. He took it all for us. Now the church through the ages has had a number of symbols for its faith. Supreme among them is the cross, of course, right? The cross is the symbol of our faith. Uh, we can also think of the ichthus, that, that Jesus fish that you see on, on the bumpers of some people's cars. A rooster has sometimes been a symbol for the faith of the church and its weakness of faith because the rooster crowed three times the night Peter denied the Lord. But a ship has also been a symbol of the church's faith and for its salvation over the years. It represents God's people together in God's care and protection amidst a storm-tossed world. If you're a Christian, you're on the boat. And we're on the boat together and he will see us through. But the ship imagery that the church used had a double meaning, a double significance, because it also reminded them of Jesus' first followers who were fishermen and who left their nets one day to become fishers 
of men. A double image. The church is the boat. The boat of salvation made up of fishers of men. God has on his, this planet today countless Noahs. Not building an ark, that's already been done for us in Jesus, but heralds, preachers, witnesses. Noah had no converts, but our mission and message is sure. Jesus said the gospel will be preached among all the nations and then the end will come. So I don't know when it will come. I don't know how soon it will be. But there has to be some fulfillment of some way to interpret the gospel preached among all nations before Jesus will come. Oh, to be a Noah and to know, yes, some will reject. But some are going to believe. He will have representative believers from every nation and tongue and culture and people so brothers and sisters we are to be fishers of men brothers and sisters we are right now safe in God's protection because of Jesus and we are safe in God's protection and care despite the crashing waves all around us it doesn't matter how tumultuous and violent and sad it gets out there. We are safe in him. And, and this is how Peter picks up the flood message and applies it in another place, in 2 Peter 2. We've already referred to 2 Peter 3. He does it earlier, 2 Peter 2. And he says, if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world. Get this. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to see us through hardship. Just look back to the boat. That's enough. He'll see you through. Look back to the boat. Look at the cross and look ahead to his return. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its many stories, but its single primary message of a God who saves sinners for his glory. Lord, help us to believe it. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to proclaim it and represent you in this crooked in generation, knowing that you will come again. And then it will be too late, but now it is not too late. And we hold out that hope to this world because you hold it out to them through us. And help us to long for the day when Jesus will come again, not threatened by his return, but knowing that is the day for us when he will make all things new. We thank you for that hope and we pray in Christ's name.
Amen.